There we go. Welcome to the Haunted Hacker Podcast, Gerald Part 2. That was what we'll call this one. A uh, little bit of uh, news to catch up on. Um, hope everybody had a good Christmas. And uh, January, I'll be speaking for ICE, as well as a CISO group in South Africa. Um, also, Predict is coming up for TechStrong TV. I'll be speaking with Donovan and Charlene on predictions for 2022, which is what we will start covering in this podcast as well. So I want to welcome Gerald. Gerald, thanks for being on the show again. Um, it's always a, a pleasure to have you on the show, and we always have some great conversations. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I really do enjoy talking with you, like on and off uh, screen. So yeah, I, I'm happy to be here. I'm, it's always flattering when you get asked back to somewhere because it basically means you didn't uh, screw it up the first time. Right, right. And we always have great conversations. Um, I've dropped in on a couple of your podcasts and a couple of your shows. And, uh, I got to say, like your show has evolved into something, you know, organic, I think. I, I really like it and I like the format. You know, hopefully one of these days, the Haunted Hacker podcast will become more of a professional podcast and less of a, uh, you know, sit down and just chit chat type deal. Um, but I, I enjoy it. I enjoy having people like you on and with your, uh, your depth of experience. So let's just jump right in. Um, 2021 has been a crazy year, both for pandemic, and cybersecurity and, and zero days and just the absurdity that's going on in cybersecurity. Um, how was your year? How, how did you view the year and, and what kind of effect did it have on you? Yeah, you know, I thought it was a, a good year. You know, people had kind of <clears throat> settled into remote workforce, digital transformation. I feel like people had budgets had gotten um, allocated for, you know, proper VPN and stuff like that. So kind of at the, the macro level of corporate enterprise, I felt like, you know, it, we, we were at least in a better uh, place. You know, I, I did find that some of the bigger impacting events of 2021 didn't have as much impact. And I'm, I'm not really sure why. I mean, I, so I worked, I, I switched jobs in April of 21. And I worked at a, you know, $5 billion academic medical center uh, as a cybersecurity architect. So I had my hands on a lot of stuff. And I was aware, of, you know, it's a pretty big target. And now I work at a mid-sized manufacturing company, still a hot target for ransomware activities, but, you know, not as, as juicy a target. So, you know, just to kind of preface my perceptions, but if you remember, right at the end of 2020, December was solar winds, and we were coming right into 2021 with like how, how you know where it, how deep are they involved? Like how bad is the breach? Um, and and it really, I never really felt like anyone was like burnt, you know, to use a kind of a punny word uh, by solar winds. And then Kaseya happened in July of 21, and it was like solar winds too, kind of, and it still didn't really. You know, so I don't know if Kasaya, for example, had great IR and were able to remediate effectively, or if, you know, the impact wasn't as great as the potential for the impact. You know, <clears throat> GRC people, we always qualify the, the impact as like the worst case scenario so we can throttle down from that. So, you know, th those two events I felt were really uh, pivotal, right? We had Colonial Pipeline, but, but, you know, I feel like ransomware has become almost commodity, <laughs> a commodity attack. And the, the solar winds and the Kaseya were kind of paradigm shifting because they were going upstream of the supply chain and getting into the MSPs, which gives them way more proliferation and obviously admin access everywhere. Uh, so I, I just thought the impact would be substantially greater than it was, um, you know, but who knows, maybe uh, stories were covered up, maybe the government uh, actually intercepted and got heavily involved you know, so I'm not sure. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. Looking back at, at colonial, I think that, you know, the government definitely got involved. They went after uh, the cryptocurrency of the group, which I thought was really interesting. It's kind of eye-opening. Um, they were like the first to actually the, the FBI go after and actually grab money from. But to me, colonial pipeline wasn't that shocking. I think the FBI actions was more shocking um, and it kind of made me think, you know, about cryptocurrency and the blockchain, you know, is it really that secure, you know, it kind of put some doubt in my head about, you know, the stability of blockchain and, you know, the transactions, because everybody's looking for that cryptocurrency that provides that, I guess, anonymous cover, um, so that you don't have the risk involved with purchases, right? At least that's what it is on the mm -hmm. internet. 
And I think that that kind of uncovered a little bit of um, insecurity. You know, when you look at Tor and how the FBI got into Tor networks and started building exit nodes, because that's where the traffic's decrypted, um, everybody started to second guess, you know, should I be on Tor? Should I be doing this on Tor? And now you have the same with blockchain. And I think that was kind of the highlight. The actual exploit itself and, and the, I guess, the side effect of it really wasn't earth breaking to me because, I mean, it wasn't the systems that they broke into weren't even really connected to the pipeline. Um, and yeah. I, think, I think there was a lot of media hype behind Colonial. There was. And I, I honestly always felt that the federal government intervened just because of the social response to the event of people filling bags with gasoline and the run on gas stations and stuff like we can't have civil unrest. Like that's like, you know, if colonial pipeline goes down for a week and they reduce production, like that sucks for them and probably has a couple pennies on the gallon impact to us, but it's, it's acceptable. You know, civil unrest is completely unacceptable. And I, I felt like once people started freaking out is when the government said like, all right, we need to intervene immediately and, and get this under control. Um, I, I also agree with you. I found it stunning that they were able to recover the funds. Um, and the, uh, the, the way it was reported that I heard was that the crypto wallet was on U.S. systems, uh, a server in the U.S., which is why they had jurisdiction to go get it. But how can you be, I mean, it wasn't like a crazy clever hack. I mean, it was just like, you know, punching right through uh, like uh, RDP or some type of, you know, non-MFA uh, VPN. But like, how can you be, clever enough to like attack that and get the ransom and then be so stupid to leave it in a US controlled server. Like it just seems crazy, you know? And then I think if I'm not mistaken, Darkside was the threat actor group that ran that and then they immediately disbanded right afterwards. So, you know, I, they definitely felt the, the heat, if you will. Yeah, and the funny thing about, you know, Darkside is they seem to be the type of group that, that comes and goes, right? You know, they'll disband and run off for a little bit and regroup. Um, and I was talking to an analyst and she was telling me something about um, the exploits that they develop and the way that they go about it. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll see a new exploit that looks like something Darkside would produce. And it has been. So it's almost like once a year, they regroup and, and reform and get everything together and then launch another attack. Um, they're not like the, I guess, some of the shops down, um, especially in India, the, the ransomware groups down there that are constantly running and gunning. Uh, you know, but I think ransomware, like like everybody thinks, I think it's here to stay. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And as long as people don't patch their systems, ransomware is going to be an issue. And I think that was a key takeaway for me this year was the fact that you know going through all these ransomware events and, and doing an incident response and looking at how they got hit and why they got hit uh, definitely opened my eyes to the fact that we're still not doing a good job with patching. And I, I don't know what it's going to take to get to the point where the industry steps back and goes, you know, we don't necessarily need AI. AI is not going to save us. What we really need is to do the fundamentals and start patching. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could remember who the uh, speaker was. Maybe it was Chris Sanders or someone like that. It was, it was one of the, you know, notable uh, InfoSec celebrities who, who are, you know, obviously great practitioners. Uh, who said like, you know, it was at a talk and he said it's 2019 or it's 2020. And I honestly could not imagine in 2000 that I would be up here telling you that we need to get patching. Like we, like we need to be patching. Like I thought we would have solved this uh, by now, but you know, patching it's, it's easy, you know, it's like chess, right. Or, or, you know, it's easy to wrap your head around, but it's very difficult to do well, just like asset inventory, frankly. And you know, with, with patching a vulnerability management program, we, we have this conflict with IT. And this is, you know, my go-to example of how InfoSec is not the same as IT. Um, it's just, you know, the business needs, they've invested X amount into this machine and I don't care if it runs Windows XP, uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna patch it. Although, you know, the funniest thing is, Mike, it, it always blows my mind, is like how much money a business will spend post-breach it's like 4x of what they would have spent pre-breach, but you can never make the business case pre-breach. But the second you you have a, a, a real situation, it's like, oh, we've got to hire everybody and buy every tool. And it, it's just, you know, I don't know, like, I guess having a near miss where like, you know, first stage gets downloaded and executed, but the payload doesn't come down is like one of the best things that can happen to a, 
uh, uh, infosec officer practitioner because uh, you get all the benefit of the of the bad event without any of the ramifications of cleaning it up. Yeah, I remember when I first started in cybersecurity and return on investment ROI was was a big argument with you know the C level and, and with IT. Um, and I, I still think we're stuck in that same mentality of you know I don't I don't want to spend a bunch of money that I don't have to spend because we're not a target right now. And then afterwards, yeah. after the cleanup, then they're willing to spend the whole budget on security. Uh, but I think that a lot of companies spend that money in the wrong way. Um, I think it's important to, to defend your systems and, and defend your networks. But I mean, some of, the, some of the ways that the attackers are getting in are not complex. And literally, it just takes a simple patch. Like I had one uh, incident uh, that I did some independent consulting on. And the guy, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, is this exchange server up to date? Well, we bought it in 2019. I said, well, yeah, of course. But, you know, have you been patching? Well, it's fairly new. We bought it in 2019. I said, so what you're telling me is you haven't patched it. No, no. I mean, it's fairly new. They kept going over and over. Yeah. About it. It's fairly new. And I had to explain to them that, you know, you have to keep up with these patches. Like the exchange server is one of the easiest ways to get in. And mm -hmm. so the end of this year, most of the instances that I saw was through proxy shell on the exchange server. Um, and it was just a mass majority of the ones that I, that I saw and that people talked to me about that, you know, the exchange server was the, the primary target. Um, but let's talk about Log4j for a second. You know, I, I was, when Log4j hit, um, there was a big panic. And, you know, working for a service provider, we were trying to rush and, and make sure that everything was covered. We were covered. Um, we had a platform um, that was vulnerable, but fortunately, you know, the version we had was not vulnerable. Um, so we were pretty much in the clear. But there were companies out there that were literally on fire with this whole Log4j. But I haven't mm -hmm. seen I haven't seen a huge impact from Log4j yet. Have you? No, I, I haven't seen any. I know I've talked to a couple, you know, anonymous sources who run, who are responsible for larger organizations, and they had a couple of systems pop um, the first couple of days, like that, that Monday, Tuesday, uh, minimal impact, you know, compromised system. They, they were able to take it offline, get it sorted out, get it back. Uh, but I haven't heard of anything um, really. And I actually saw Alyssa Miller on Twitter uh, posit about this uh, last week. And it, you know, so I don't want to claim this as my own thoughts, but, um, you know, give citation properly, but um, it, it was something around the lines of like, is it, is it that the vulnerability is everywhere, but the people who are exploiting it don't know how to take advantage of it? Or is it that it's, you know, kind of these situations where nation state threat actors are, uh, had to get a few days to get their tools in order and everything. And then they're, they're exploiting and, and getting footholds. Uh, and then establishing like long, you know, deep sea beacons for C2 persistence, like six month beaconing. Um, so, so they can root until, you know, the focus, the eye of Sauron goes away from staring at the log4j stuff and then begin to unpack uh, whatever goodies they want to bring in there. Uh, and, I, and I feel like it could be a mixed bag of that. Uh, I don't know what permissions log4j or that Apache service executes under. So if it's not, you know, if it's an unprivileged one. You know, you get it, but then what? What, what, what do you do? Like your your code isn't going to really run, and you're just making a lot of noise. So, um, you know, I I don't think Log4j is done. You know, I saw Black Hills webcast talking about this about how this is more of a category of vulnerability almost, where like this is the first, but there's going to be other ones of these logging systems that are pushing what you put in all the way through to potentially you know vulnerable systems like that. So. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm a little surprised that there hasn't been a big news slash story. I really thought a financial services client, like a bank or, or something would get hit a crypto exchange, uh, was really right where I thought that they would go initially um, in order to, you know, basically exfiltrate a bunch of, or, you know, move a bunch of money uh, while everybody was still trying to figure out what, what was going on. Um, but, you know, I guess time will tell. I, I am glad. Um, you know, the, the, our industry has like really recently responded in a very noisy fashion, in a very like 
you know, whoa, and, and which is good because it gets a lot of attention. I know long before Jay was on CNBC and CNN and Fox News and everything like by Wednesday, Thursday uh, of the week. So it was gaining traction in a mainstream way, which, which is good because, um, you know, you, you need the business to like reallocate resources, not just money, but like people need to stop what they're doing, understand deadlines will be missed because this is a new priority. Um, and I'm just glad it's like another positive thing that I see in the business world of the way that the business is now accepting and understanding that cybersecurity is a fluid dynamic thing that like project timelines sometimes don't matter. Right. Right. And I think that another key factor too, um, was the government's involvement with log4j and some of the government, uh, federal groups, you know, I know CISA put out a scanning tool, um, for log4j, which I thought mm-hmm. was, it came out very quick too. It wasn't like it took forever. Um, and it's really effective tool. Like I ran that a couple of times on different servers. I set up a vulnerable server and I mean, it worked great. Um, but I think that we're seeing a lot more government interaction with the community and a lot more effective communication between the government and cybersecurity, which I'm pretty excited about. I know that they're trying to pass laws and, and uh, bills about you know, people identifying themselves as being breached within 72 hours. We all know that's yeah. not quick. We all know that's not quick enough, but at least they're making strides in the right direction. Um, and I think with, with the next year, you know, let's, let's talk about predictions for a second. I, I think that this next year, we're going to see a change with the government looking at cybersecurity and maybe the way that they embrace the community. Um, in the past, it's been kind of, you have your federal, and then you have your commercial. Um, it hasn't necessarily been one group, but I think we're starting to see that blend. Um, but I think the threats are getting a lot more um, critical, I guess. Uh, there's always been a threat against the infrastructure, but now we're seeing some actual activity around that. And I think that's mm-hmm. putting the government on a bigger alert level. Yeah, I mean, I agree um, 100%. I, I really feel like Jen Easterly, the director at CISA, like the way CISA has been going since she came there, I, I've never met her, but I feel like it's taken on her personality as far as the collaborative efforts. Um, I'm also seeing, you know, again, because like when something happens, information spreads, we have ISACs now, these information sharing analysis centers that are kind of industry focused or really specific uh, niche focused. And, you know, with the government involvement and stuff like that, I, I would like to see kind of a more coordinated, you know, ISAC, you know, like whatever, call it the, the CISA ISAC or the public private sector ISAC, just a, a base, um, you know, base threat intel thing. So things like Log4j, that's not really industry specific, but is important, can be communicated, uh, knowledge shared, you know, like these tools, this, this, this log4j tool, CISA released, I found out about it through a podcast on CISA series. And you, you'd already found it and run it in your environment and stuff like that. But that's me and you and we're active, right? If if you're a, a matrixed IT person who has security responsibilities, but it's not your main bag, you're not consuming this type of media uh, on the regular. So these these free tools that are highly effective aren't, you know, you're not aware of them. And, and that's where I'm hoping that the, the government, this private partner, uh, public partnership really shines because yeah, reporting in, if you're a private sector company that you received a, a ransom attack or a breach so we can have metrics and numbers is good for long-term strategic direction and investment, but it doesn't help you today. And when your pants are on fire, you're looking for a bucket of water today. You don't want the idea of like, we're going to bring in an aqueduct and irrigation up in here. It's like, my pants are on fire, dude. Help me now. So I, I really feel like that that's going to be the real value. And there's going to be a ton of um, private sector support for that, uh, frankly, because there's there's value to the private sector. I always felt like that's the big, I'm sorry, Mike, I'm starting to go, get all frothy and rant here, but I feel like that's always been the, the, the challenge is that the public sector is just like dictating things without really accounting for the private sector or delivering value to the private sector. The, the NIST cybersecurity framework was a really good first um, piece of work where it was you know, collaborative and stuff like that, but it's still not immediate value. And uh, it, we're starting to see that. And I, and I think that that's why the private sector is now going to start latching on and, and, and wanting to get in the boat and row in the same direction. Yeah, I think uh, one of the tools that I played with that the government produced, uh, NSA put out GITA, 
uh, reverse engineer tool. And I remember when it first came out and everybody was kind of hesitant, you know, a lot of security researchers were like, mm, I don't know about that. You know, where's this information going? Let's take a look at this tool. Um, but they were actually trying to help, uh, you know, so yeah. I, I think that it, slowly but surely, I think they're going to integrate themselves. You know, there, there was a pushback at first because, you know, security researchers are, are infamous for being paranoid of the government because of what we do and, and how we do it. Um, but I think that that's, that's slowly going to change. But as far as threats go, you know, I sat down and, and thought about this a lot in the past six months uh, about where we're going and, and what we're about to face. And looking at the type of threats that, that we ran into this year alone um, and some of the uh, APT and some of the politically driven attacks like Cuba uh, getting into the infrastructure, um, I, I hate to say it, but I think this upcoming year is going to be a very polit politicized, very politic based threat landscape um, with, you know, you have, you have Russia and, you know, on the border of the Ukraine, which could go anyway. Um, you have China trying to take over Taiwan. Um, you have Cuba being accused of, you know, their, their whole LRAD and, and, you know, that Havana syndrome. So with all those political events, I've tried to try to explain this on, on the podcast over the past couple of months is that a lot of the security breaches we see, a lot of cybersecurity issues we, we run into are politically driven. They're not just attacks. They're not just after money. Um, a lot of it is a political statement. And I think 2022 is going to be the year of the political statement. And I think the infrastructure uh, as a whole, the entire infrastructure is a, a huge risk with, with all the political tension going on. And not to mention our own issues with politics internally. I think the temperament and the pulse of, of the people just within the U.S., has become so polarized, um, you know, and, and people are ready to jump up and, and riot or protest or, you know, hack into systems or breaches. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's what we're going to run into this year. And, I, you know, I, I hope I hope we're able to handle the amount of stress that's, that's about to come through those different pain points, because you're looking at every almost every major red country right now has tensions mm -hmm. with the U.S. as far as politically and, and cyber. Um, so I think we're about to face a, a storm this year. Yeah, no, it's, that's a valid point. And, you know, while you're saying it, it just makes me think, again, I'm not a geopolitical expert. You know, I just, you know, read the news or whatever. But, you know, if, with Russia focusing on Ukraine as much as they are this second and China focusing on Taiwan as much as they are this second and, and some of the work they're doing, relative to their own population um, is taking a lot of, I would imagine, right? This is speculative, but if, you know, having run an information security program, if you only have so many people and resources and you're dedicating them to look internally and to look at Ukraine or, you know, whatever, when that project is completed or that mission objective is achieved, your resources free up and you move them on to the next project, which might align with what you're predicting for 2022 around, okay, now that we've, you know, solidified the base, let's look at the adversarial space and, um, and, and disrupt that. Um, one way, you know, I guess to kind of nicely segue to one of the projections that I have, and I've, if anyone who knows me listening to this knows that I, I, I make this every year, but I swear this is the year. Um, I do think that a deep fakes related attack relative to a political entity uh, will be a, a factor this year that we'll be talking about, whether it's um, you know, whatever, insert whatever political figure you want, uh, doing some backdoor shady deal or two adversarial figures, like let's say, you know, Putin and, and uh, Biden, right? Or, you know, who are Putin and Trump, like pick, pick whichever side you want and then choose the other, um, you know, having a back alley handshake or, or whatever, fraudulent papers, because yeah, the investigation might prove downstream that it was fraudulent. Uh, the papers were fraudulent, the emails fraudulent, the deep fake was fraudulent. But when people see it, we're, we're like a media driven group and video is like the medium that people love to consume, TikTok, Instagram, all these things. So something like that, if done well, could spread like wildfire and uh, cause, you know, some, some serious issues. Again, it could get remedied quickly, but the impact while the match head is catching the, the, the magnesium or whatever, or the sulfate is that's where the, the burn is, you know? So, I do think the deep fake stuff, it's getting better. It's getting much better. 
it is easy to detect, which is uh, nice, but you need you need tools. You can't detect it with the naked eye. So the human can't detect it. Technology can. So put me down for deep fakes, Mike. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that because this morning I was watching the news and I was watching the Today Show and they had a guy on there that looked somewhat similar to Tom Cruise. And he and a graphic artist from Europe somewhere, I want to say Sweden, um, did this deep fake and they're on TikTok. And he acts like Tom Cruise. He talks like Tom Cruise. And with the computer graphics, you can't tell the difference. And they were going yeah. over deep fake and how easy it is now as opposed to before. So before they were saying, oh, it used to take months to get this level of deep fake. Now it's taken like a number of days. So it's, it's a huge, I guess, step uh, for deep fake, but it also is a scary step. Um, and I don't know if, if you've well, seen, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, you know, obviously the Putin Biden uh, Trump thing is, is clearly like a, an easy one, but business email compromises where the, you know, we make money uh, or we being a threat actor, they make money with business email companies. Hey, Mike, it's the CEO. I can't, I'm going to get on a plane. I need you to kind of check for $2 million to uh, Jerry Enterprises. And they need it done before five o'clock because we're going to, the deal is going to fall through. Okay. That email might be sniffed out as fraudulent. I've educated my end users. If it is a video recorded Zoom meeting of me, the CEO of the company pissed off and telling you to do something, you're going to do it because why would your eyes deceive you? And I think that also could be a real, I don't know if it would be reported or not. That could be a very real attack scenario as well. Oh, absolutely. And I've seen um, deep fake examples as far as Europe goes, and especially in Russia. Um, I saw a couple of deep fakes that were actually videos and put different people in different places at different times that they weren't supposed to be there. And it just by the naked eye, like you say, you can't really tell. But once they dove into it and, and dissected it and looked at the different parts, then yeah, you can tell. But in the heat of the moment, nobody's going to sit down and take that stuff apart and do the analysis before they react to a video. I mean, it's going to be right. right then and right there. Uh, another great movie to watch, and you know, people laugh, but I watched this the other day and it was really, really good, um, was called Don't Look Up. And it was oh, sort, yeah, of, heard about it. sort of a satire on our politics, our media um, and an extraterrestrial threat as far as like, you know, a comment. Um, but some of the things that they, they were talking about, the way they portrayed the media, uh, we're, like you said, we're a media driven company or country. And, you know, if the media says it, most of the world buys into it and jumps right on, mm-hmm. the, right on that bandwagon. I think that's a big threat too, is, is getting that media machine moving in the wrong direction. But as far as uh, other threats go, you know, I definitely think that we're going to see some geopolitical issues uh, with technology. Uh, I don't think supply chain threat is going to go anywhere. I think that's going to you know, keep going down the same course. Um, but I do see a switch in not so many large companies being attacked, but more small to medium businesses being attacked. Uh, the mm-hmm. increase I've seen over the past six months for SMBs is just astronomical. Um, and I don't know the solution for that because they're not losing enough money to, uh, for the government to, to really take hold and take a look. But in the same token, these smaller and medium businesses are getting shut down. Um, and those are the people that are your vendors, um, your smaller vendors, uh, also play a part in supply chain. Um, and like we've seen through the U S you know, food supply and, and gas and all that, um, and especially with shipping, you know, that threat is still going to maintain too. I think that maritime threat is going to be increased exponentially this year too. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, was it not yeah when that knocked out Merck mm-hmm. uh, in like 2017 or something? Um, I mean, that, that was a nightmare. That was a logistics and shipping nightmare. You think of just like your Amazon packages a day late. Yeah, that's fine. But when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of shipping containers, there it's real logistics, right? With cranes and trucks and coming and going and uh, manifest and all that stuff. So yeah, it, it can be uh, quite, quite dramatic. You know, one, one area that I, uh, I, I haven't really, I want your thoughts on this, Mike. I, one area that I think is going to be very um, juicy target and, and see a lot of threat activity um, is in the, in web three or meta, right? So when we, when I think about 
how threat actors think. And I'm, I'm by no means, uh, you know, that bright, right? I'm, I'm, I'm more of a conformist than anything. But when I try to think about it, I always say follow the money, right? So crypto, crypto came out and people started hacking wallets, hacking exchanges, all these things. And now Meta's coming out and we're seeing, you know, people buy $650 million, whatever, uh, digital yachts, NFTs are huge. And I get that NFTs are unique, so you can't really steal them. But I, I, I just think with the way that we're pushing into this, you know, uh, virtual reality, uh, immersed reality kind of life, um, that it's just, there's going to be money there. There's going to be transactions there, whether it's U.S. cash or you know currency cash or in-game currency or whatever. I don't I don't know yet, but I I just think that if there's value to something in there, and people haven't quite figured out how it works or how to secure it or like you know how to operate it correctly, then it's going to be a target for attackers to you know to investigate, to prod, to push, and to ultimately commit fraud. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you look at Second Life um, and some of the other online games, you know, those have been a target for attackers since day one. Um, anything that has any kind of in-game monetization or, or, or actual dollar value, um, they've been going after. And look at the early days of, uh, you know, like PlayStation Network and stuff like that. They've always been a target as well. So you're right. I mean, anything that, that you can monetize whether it be digital or not, especially digital, because, you know, you look at some of the games that kids play and the ability to buy things within the game. And since I was young and since my son was young, I, I would watch people hijack people's accounts and steal all mm -hmm. their, their money through their account. And yeah. it may be digital currency, but I mean, the effect it has on, on the gameplay and, and the quality of service and actually, you know, the, the confidence of the players, you know, it changes. Um, but the big push with NFTs, like that still amazes me. Like it just, yeah. it blows my mind. Um, there was someone on Twitter this morning that um, she, I guess she got on Twitter and found out that her image had became an NFT and she was pretty pissed off about it. You know, like I want this removed immediately. Um, and I, you know, I don't understand the big push towards that um, because I know that's the route that we're going as far as, as, as currency goes, uh, I know the dollar can't last forever, and we're starting to see some of the instability with you know the U.S. currency already. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily think virtual or crypto is is the way to go. Um, there's just way too many problems with it, and not only that, but you know you look at the sanctions we put on foreign countries like Iran and China, and what's the first thing they do when we put sanctions on? They run to crypto and start breaking crypto wallets and, and mining crypto. Um, there's a big operation in China that was shut down um, last year where there was multiple servers involved. And of course, the people in China that were responsible went to jail. But, you know, everybody runs to crypto when the currency gets, you know, when there's an issue with the currency or the instability starts. Uh, and I think that's another area that we really need to look at as far as cybersecurity goes is the blockchain. You know, I, I mentioned this before, you know, if, if the FBI can do it, anybody can. I mean, right. we, all, we all know that they're, you know, they have some talented people on their cyber team. I've interviewed a couple on the show, but they always come to security researchers to help them figure out the hard problems. Um, so if the FBI can get in without help, then we're all in trouble as far as blockchain goes, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I have another uh, prediction that I think is more of a positive light. It is, it is a threat, but one that I think everybody's going to really enjoy. I think, I think 2022 is the year that passwords die, Mike, by and large. I, I think we're going to be passwordless uh, I, I in January hope. 23rd. Yeah. So with, with you know, Windows, Microsoft Windows Hello for Business, they've made this massive adoption push, especially in Windows 11 for this non-password authentication mechanism. And they've offered several, right? With, with you've got the phone number, the text message, which were all traditional biometric. Now they've got one where you can like have a picture that you choose and you touch it in different places. All, all these things that are much more secure uh, in regards to a password being compromised um, and easier for end users, which, you know, who doesn't like that? Uh, and it's just, everything about it is really positive. And I think, once it's um, once once we have the infrastructure and technology in place to support the 
passwordless authentication schemes at a, at a, at a scale that is, that is um, warrants, or not warrants, but at a scale that supports the, the load of the customer base for, for whatever it is, um, and it's widespread adoption, um, then I think we'll, we'll do it. There'll still be like, you know, <clears throat> Windows XP machines in, in manufacturing sites and stuff that just, well, it'll be legacy tech. But I think for like your cloud solutions and your, um, your main operating system and stuff like that will be passwordless and we'll all love it. Like our kids' kids won't even understand why we use passwords. Like how, that doesn't even make sense. Right, I, I totally agree. But do you think that going passwordless is gonna end up taking us down the road of facial recognition and biometrics? Yeah, I, I mean, yes. I mean, there's, there's always a trade-off and I always kind of get like wrapped around the axle as far as how I, how I feel about this with privacy and invasion of privacy versus um, convenience, right? So like I, I own an iPhone and I can use my face to unlock it and the biometric print is inside the phone, right? But that doesn't mean it can't be pulled out by Apple. Um, and then ultimately, I don't know if this is where you're going, but government uh, surveillance and widespread surveillance and then like complete erosion of privacy. Um, I do think that's the case, but it, I mean, there's other options besides biometrics. It's just that biometrics is so difficult, not impossible, but with FIDO2 compliance, it's very difficult to um, uh, compromise or, you know, or, you know, fraudulently uh, replicate. And it's super convenient because you never forget your face. Like you never leave your thumb in the car. You know what I mean? Like you don't accidentally leave your, your, your palm print at the hotel room. Like it's with you. You've always carrying it. And that level of convenience is fantastic. And if you're, you know, whatever you're had a couple too many beers and you, you got to pay the Uber driver. Like, yeah, you might not remember like how to unlock the app to, to get to the multi-factor token or which picture you did. You could put your thumb on it uh, and do it. Now, of course, that can be defeated or um, taken advantage of, right? So you pass out and your buddy then pays for his Uber with your thumb. These these are some of the you know trade-offs. But I just think our society is all about convenience and end users specifically want the easiest path to complete their task. What Their task is not to authenticate. Their task is to get payroll done or to make widgets or whatever. They don't care about that. You're just impeding their ability to get to what they need to do. And if you can, if, if that road can be smoother with fewer obstacles, then that's the road that the adoption is going to support and, and drive to, especially the business. Once the executives get a taste of passwordless, it's, it's over. Yeah, I agree too. I th- but I do think that, you know, if, if the company that goes in that direction and starts leading us down that path happens to be one of the big three, let's say Google meta. or Amazon yeah. or Meta, we're all in trouble. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, and it goes the same as AI. So I was talking to Max Hickermeyer about this not too long ago. And I think that as, as a civilization, we're ready for something like that. But I do think that if, it, if it's created and maintained and harnessed by the wrong people, then it could be, could be hugely detrimental to the whole planet. Um, but yeah, that again, well, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what I mean, just if you look at what Facebook did when they were like basically unregulated, ungoverned with all of that data, um, <laughs> they immediately monopolized it. And then, you know, secondary sources like Cambridge Analytica were able to weaponize it. Uh, and, you know, they didn't become the richest, well, top three richest companies in the world because they weren't doing stuff like that. So um, I don't know how you would control it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, people, righteous people can have righteous decisions, but they are a private company that's driven by financial revenue. They can have a community outreach program and, and you know, fair, fair practices department. But at the end of the day, they, they're a publicly traded company with um, a responsibility to shareholders to make as much money as possible. And if that's an asset, I don't see how they couldn't. And, you know, so we'll see with all this Oculus Quest 2 VR stuff. I mean, I think it's just a matter of time before you put the damn thing on and it scans your, your, your eyes and you're in as whatever. Yeah, especially like I know China has been like really cutting edge when it comes to facial recognition. Um, but again, I, I don't know if I would trust their motives when it comes to producing, you know, equipment or content based on facial recognition. So this upcoming year, you know, you have the podcast, you have all the stuff that you do. What's what's in store for for Gerald with these things in 2022? 
Oh, yeah, thanks for asking. I'm pretty excited. Actually, one of the early projects for 2022, I'm almost done working on it, is uh, I'm developing an online course that, uh, you know, I've been doing Simply Cyber and helping people and, you know, I do webinars and stuff like that. But um, I've been asked so many times, like, where do I get training for red? Well, go do this. There's a million options. How do I get training for blue? Oh, well, you're lucky because in the last 18 months, several platforms have cropped up. And then they ask, where do I get training for GRC? And I never have a good answer. I always say, uh, you can read NIST, but it's more of a reference than a training manual. Uh, but that's the best I got. And finally, one of these times I said, Jesus, I, I just, like, I have 15 years of GRC experience. I should just make a course that helps people. So I'm almost done with this practical GRC analyst course. And basically it's uh, broken into several sections, like a risk section, a security awareness section, a governance compliance, um, a little bit of a cybersecurity primer, and then how to get a GRC analyst job at the bottom. But the, the nice thing is with each of the content pieces, like security awareness or compliance or whatever, there's the theory of what you need to know about the job and how it really operates in a professional setting. But then I have a lab section, which I think is kind of groundbreaking for GRC, frankly. And it's a lab section where we're going to actually do something like I'm going to, we're going to audit the AC family in a NIST uh, 853 control framework. And this is like, these are the tools I would use when I do an audit. And here's how you would capture that. And then after you complete the practical lab module, uh, you would get to it anyways, but you unlock like a couple resume bullets that you can copy and paste directly into a resume because you literally have just achieved that skill doing that lab. Uh, and I've, I've got one for security awareness, one for compliance, one for audit, one for risk. Um, and, and, and those are the modules really. And I just think it's going to unlock some opportunity for people who want to understand whether they're new to the field or they're trying to get out of blue because they don't like working on holidays. Like here is a primer on the core fundamentals of GRC. Like if you go get a GRC analyst job, these are the things they're going to ask you to do. So here you go. You're, you know, they know. so that's, that's coming out probably in like, um, I'm going to do some beta testing in, in early January and then probably release it in early February. And I, I'm pretty excited about it. That, that's one of the bigger projects. And then, you know, just simply cyber, I just started recently doing a, a daily morning cybersecurity news briefing that has been really well received. That's different than most of the simply cyber stuff I do, which is like live streams on Thursdays and uh, weekly produced videos of core concepts on Mondays. So yeah, it's, 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 it's been good. It's all organic though. I, I couldn't have told you last year for predictions that I would have done first things first uh, this year, but it just, it seemed like the right thing to do at this time. Yeah, I think that once you start like content creation and content development, it kind of takes on a life of its own, you know, and, and this has been going on for, for a year. The Haunted Hacker has been going on for a year. We haven't changed a whole lot over the year. I think that, um, you know, I, I like the same format. We used to have a lot of people on uh, in the audience. We used to have an audience when we record, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I found that too distracting, too disturbing sometimes. Um, so with this, you know, it's more intimate and it's more of a discussion between, you know, friends and, and just, you know, kind of relaxed. Uh, but for me, this upcoming year is going to be kind of exciting as well that I, I've been doing, um, content creation for Alyssa Knight and I have uh, a screenplay that I wrote called Ransom and it's going to be out, um, in January or February, I believe early, early next year. Um, and we're doing short films for, for advertising for companies. So instead of your commercial or, you know, your brochures, companies are starting to buy these short films, these 10 minute films. Um, and that's what we're doing is we're creating these, this content for companies, which is really cool. Yeah. I had someone send me the trailer to ransom just okay. yesterday and asked me to review it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I was really surprised when, when she asked me and it, you know, I'm kind of a fish out of water when it comes to screenplay writing. I've never written anything. Um, I've never gone to that level of development. But, you know, I try to push the envelope and try to push myself. I think 2022, it, I'm going to be doing more of that, you know, really trying mm -hmm. to dive off into different areas and, and learn learn more. Um, I tend, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to get stagnant sometimes where I, I get complacent, where I'm, I'm okay with just hacking or I'm okay with just podcasting. Um, and I think it's time for me as an individual to kind of step out and, and take some risk and learn some new stuff. So, I mean, as far as, as Gerald goes and, and, you know, the industry, 
what is your end goal? I mean, everybody, everybody asked me, you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I still haven't yeah. quite figured that out yet. Um, but I know that I'm on the road that, that I enjoy. And obviously you are too, because listen to your, to your podcast and, and watching your shows, like your people love you and, you know, you, you're super excited about doing it. Um, do you see that changing or, or developing into something new? Yeah, I, the Simply Cyber community is a fantastic community. I, I really love those guys. Um, no, you know, so I've been a practitioner, uh, more of a traditional route, like, you know, went to a computer science education and then came out and uh, did some technical stuff and then, you know, worked my way up through GRC. And now I, I run my own security program. That was always like the career goal was to run my own program. Um, and I never really thought about Simply Cyber before I, I started creating it. Um, but I, I've really, um, I, I feel like I've really kind of achieved a lot of the professional goals I had, in, in, which, is, which is good because I love cybersecurity and, um, and, and I got a PhD and stuff. So like I, I've, I've, I've really consumed as much as I can. And there's still so much that I don't know. Like there's tons and tons that I just don't know, which is my favorite part about cybersecurity because there's always something to learn. But I really want to it simply cyber went from like a hobby to like a regular thing to now something that has like people who i feel um i don't want to say depend on me but have expectations and 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 look like i don't want to say i leave them but like i provide a service uh to the community and i take that 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 um role uh quite seriously um so I'd like to continue, honestly, like, we'll see where Simply Cyber goes. I know I've got some, some, we didn't get into all the details, but I've got some things lined up, some great guests uh, for the live stream. I might, I might increase uh, the live streams from once to twice a week. I'd like to, I'd really like to do some more um, series type content where it's like, okay, let's do PNPT, right? For example, and like, let's like, I, I just don't have the time to properly edit it and piece it together, but like, like, okay, so we're gonna go through PNPT, but that requires us to go through all of TCM's training. So let's do the OSINT course together. And then it's like more of a longitudinal multi-episode mini series that kind of stands on its own as a season. Uh, I, it, but I'd love to do that in addition to maintaining the morning daily cybers and the, you know these live streams and stuff like that. I might actually pair back on my Monday produced videos uh, because community does love that, uh, but it's a lot of time to produce a video versus a live stream. And I feel like if I did them every other week, I'd have more time to dig into some other projects, maybe you know add a, a, an extra live stream a week uh, and be able to do one a week and then still have two produced videos a month. So I'm kind of playing with the format uh, but as, as far as the long-term goal goes, you know, I haven't really thought whether or not like I'd want Simply Cyber to be my full-time job or, um, you know, leave practice or anything like that. But um, I'm just, you know, I, it's so cliche to say I'm taking it one day at a time, but like it is very organic. It's all mine. So I get to decide, um, you know, when I work, how I work, what I work on, uh, which is really, really uh, therapeutic for me. Uh, because I get to dive into whatever, like Log4j happened, right? Like I need to know about it to do my own job. So let's just spend all day Saturday learning about it, spin up a Spring Boot, roll and roll app, use John Hammond's tool, ding, look at it, cool. And then why not share this knowledge with uh, some people who may not be able to technically set up the Spring Boot and get a VM going. Like, you know, it's it's not, it's it's easy if you know how to do it, but if you don't, it's hard. So why not make that for someone else? And um, I, I just really enjoy that. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping Simply Cyber um, continues to, to grow and, and organically develop in ways that both delivers value to the community and makes me happy and in and, and my personal life too. You know, I, I do have a family and a wife and children uh, that I do enjoy spending time with. Um, and I, it, it, all has to, it all has to flow together. It's got to be very um, Tai Chi-ish, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I tend to uh, find myself doing three or four recordings a week, and then you know wearing myself down. Um, I don't think at this point I could even have a family with with my schedule. Um, balance, balance is not something I'm very good at. So I try, and and it's really important for people who listen that you know you definitely have to have some sort of balance or you burn yourself out pretty yeah. quick. 
Uh, but yeah, any last thoughts before we go? And I, I really appreciate you being on. This has been a pleasure as, as usual. And I always love just picking your brain. Like, you know, I look up to you in the community and, and I know a lot of other people do as well. So it means a lot to have you on the show. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mike. Yeah, um, you know, I love being on the show. I uh, love talking with you. It's always, it's always like a very intelligent, uh, thoughtful conversation that really, you know, getting other people's perspective in the field is always important to really putting your own perspective, cha- not just challenging your own perspective, but giving you context to think differently so you can see a situation, a scenario, a problem, a threat, whatever, from multiple angles and not just, um, you know, putting all your biases in. Um, I, I guess I would just say, you know, for, you know, the upcoming year, since that was kind of the focus of our conversation, you know, I'm starting to see a lot of people posting on LinkedIn about, about, I just got this job. I just got this job. So I'm hoping that, you know, I don't know if it's budgets coming out or, or people getting more serious about cybersecurity or all the work that people have been doing in 2021 to set themselves up for success in 2022 is beginning to pay dividends. But I, I guess I'm just hoping that um, all the work that people have been putting in is, is really uh, turning into work and jobs and the networking and all that. I mean, I met you through networking and I'm very glad I did. And I'm seeing a lot of people listen to the that guidance because a lot of people like yourself and myself and other people in the industry, that's what they're saying. You need to network. You need to contribute. You need to listen. You need to be part of what's going on. And I, I'm seeing people do that. And I really think that, you know, it's not just us listening to ourselves speak. It's, it's, it's sage advice that's truly, um, you know, taking effect. Absolutely. I, I, can't, I can't agree more. And uh, yeah, definitely not listening to myself. As a matter of fact, I don't even listen to my podcast after they're recorded. I can't stand the sound of my own voice. <laughs> uh, so a lot of people don't know that. Uh, but thanks again for being on the show. And uh, you and your family have you know what happy holidays what's left of it and uh i hope you prosper and and you have good luck in 2022 and we'll talk again soon all right thanks mike i'll have you on simply cyber awesome thanks gerald have a good one man all right cheers bye